And if you could keep your Bible open at Ephesians chapter 1, which I believe may be found on page 1163, uh, that is our preaching text for today. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10 on page 1163. Brothers and sisters, let me pray and ask God for his help as I preach and as we uh, hear God's word. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, the person who wrote these verses, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, was writing them from prison. Uh, The Apostle Paul had been incarcerated in chains ever since he had been dragged out of the Jerusalem temple and nearly beaten to death. Uh, He had been taken under heavily armed guard for fear of assassination all the way to Rome. Whilst on the way there, he suffered a shipwreck, and he had remained in jail for many years. And so we might ask the question, why on earth would such a man, imprisoned for the sake of Christ and his gospel, start a letter from prison with the words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. By all standards that we might expect, Paul's life certainly did not look best. Uh, blessed. There is a stark contrast between the reality that he faced, his suffering, and the promises that he was proclaiming about God and his gospel. Uh, Paul, on the one hand, could say that he was chosen in love by God and yet despised and rejected by man. He could call himself the beloved adopted son of God, and yet at the same time the refuse of the world. He could say that he had been redeemed from his slavery to sin, and yet here he was bound in chains for Christ. Now, of course, Paul's life uh, testifies to a truth that we find repeatedly affirmed in Scripture that in this world, God's people will live under suffering, threat, and persecution. Uh, Sometimes that threat may be political, uh, as the Jews in Esther's time uh, suffered under the wrath of Haman. Uh, For others, it may be religious, as Daniel and his friends refused to bow down to the golden image. But often it will also be a combination of both, like the Apostle Paul. And as we look at these things, we are inclined to ask why. Why is it like this? Why can we say that God, who is infinitely good and infinitely powerful and uh, declares that he has blessed us in Christ, why uh, is it that Christians will undergo uh, such trials and torments? 
Now, of course, there are a couple of possible answers. Uh, some will conclude that there is no God. And if there is no God, well, then there is no purpose to existence, and we are just the product of blind and pitiless indifference. But perhaps we might conclude that God is not all good. Uh, that actually he is in control of things, but he doesn't govern things according to our welfare. Or perhaps third, that he might indeed be all good, but he is certainly not all powerful. But for Paul in this passage, despite his chains, despite being a sufferer for Christ, neither of these alternatives is true. Paul affirms that God ordains all things and has ordained all things from eternity past, and his purpose is for the good of his people. And so we need to explore a little more. What is this purpose that God has? We see the word purpose and the word will and uh, the word uh, plan appear repeatedly in this passage. And so we need to ask, what is God's ultimate purpose? What is it that God seeks? Why has God fashioned the universe? To what direction is he driving all things? And I think there are two ways, two intimately connected ways that we can answer that question and which the apostle answers. One is this, that God's ultimate purpose for all of creation is the praise of his own glory. Uh, that is, our good is not the immediate object of God's purpose, but his ultimate object is to pursue his glory. However, the way in which God demonstrates his glory in history is shown in his grace towards us in Christ. And that is why in this long sentence that Paul writes all the way from verse 3 to verse 14, repeats the phrase, to the praise of God's glorious grace. We see it in verse 6, and we see it in verse 12, and we see it in verse 14, that God's purpose is the praise of his glory, and his glory is shown in his grace. Because although the heavens, as the psalmist said, do indeed declare the glory of God, that the skies above proclaim the work of his hands, and indeed although all of creation radiates God's power and his majesty, it is only through Christ that the glory of God's grace is made known to us. So when God adopts his enemies and gives to them the rights and privileges of sons, when God redeems at infinite expense those who have become worthless through sin, when God forgives those who have profaned his divine majesty, when God triumphs over sin and death, when God gives to us every spiritual blessing, although we deserve his curse, then God is made known to all in heaven and on earth, and particularly to us, as the God of glorious grace. God's grace is the ultimate purpose, the glory that is demonstrated in that grace is the ultimate purpose to which God guides creation. And that is why we see in verse 9 and 10 
that what is God's purpose? God's purpose, verse 9, is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Because in Christ, God's purpose for the church, for saving the church, is made known to us and to all. Now, I think this is the reason uh, why this passage is also permeated uh, with the language of predestination and of election. Now, you see in verse 4 here, what is it that God has blessed us with? Well, he has blessed us in Christ. That is, every blessing we have comes through our union with Jesus. Uh, That the nature of those blessings are spiritual blessings. That is, they are not material Uh, And the location of those blessings is in the heavenly places. It is not here on earth. That also helps us to understand why Paul could say that he was blessed with every spiritual blessing, although he was currently in prison. Because the location of his blessing was not on earth, not in Rome, but in heaven. And the nature of his blessing is Christ, the Christ who suffered and died for him. Anyway, returning to election, we see in verse 4, what do we see? That God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, we see that we are predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, why is that important? For what purpose does the apostle want us to know that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and that our salvation is ultimately the result of our predestination. Well, it's not merely a doctrinal point. It is not there to elevate our pride as we understand something distinct in theology. Actually, the opposite is quite true. It is there to humble us Because election and predestination, God's sovereign choice of us, underlines fundamentally that it is God's grace that saves us and not what we have done or could do. That is, just as Jacob was chosen in the womb instead of Esau before either had done anything, so too, if we are saved, if we are trusting in Christ, It's got nothing whatsoever ultimately to do with our goodness or our decision to trust in Christ. The ultimate reason is that before the foundation of the world, before God fashioned the seas and the skies, before he made the birds and the fishes, before he formed the world, before he formed the stars, that he loved us in Christ and decided as he made the world to save us in him, that we might be the recipients of his glorious grace. I think this is important to understand because what I'm about to say will incline us improperly to pride if falsely understood. And what I want to say is this, that I think the apostle is also telling us that our identity as the church is extremely important. It defines who we are and therefore how we should behave in this world. And he wants us to know that our identity as the church, the very fact that we are gathered here, is enormously significant 
to God's plans and purposes for the universe. Now, that sounds really profoundly ridiculous. We are quite a small group of people. Uh, we are not particularly significant in the world's eyes. Most of us are not wealthy, and most of us have not reached great heights socially. And so to say that we somehow are integral to God's purposes for the universe is, is almost laughable. But actually, if, if we speak of God's purpose in Christ, if we speak of a Savior, we are also speaking of those who are saved. If we are speaking of a Redeemer, we are also speaking of those whom he redeems. If we are speaking of grace which is given, we are also speaking about grace which will be received. So it's difficult for us to talk about God's purpose in Christ to show grace without speaking of the church as the object of grace. It's almost like a prism. In, in, in this way that God demonstrates his glory, it is not as though we have an intrinsic value, an intrinsic goodness, an intrinsic glory, but it is rather like a prism through which light shines. You have the, the purity of the light that hits the prism, and the prism would be nothing in darkness. But as the light goes through the prism, it, it shows forth in all of its beauty the colors of the rainbow, and I think in, in this way, the church as the recipient of God's grace in Christ is showing forth something majestic about God's character, about who he is, that he is a God who is not merely powerful and not merely wise, but that his wisdom and power have been demonstrated in love and grace to us who are undeserving, and these things to the praise of his glory. However, as my final point, I also think that here Paul is not just telling us theological truth. He is not just calling us to, to know that we are adopted as God's beloved children, that we are redeemed, that we are bought back from sin, that we are forgiven of our every sin, that God has lavished upon us the riches in Christ, he also wants to know that there is a purpose, there is a reason that he is telling the church these things. And I think we see that in part in verse 15. In verse 15, after Paul has expounded this long sentence of all of our spiritual blessings, he says this, he says, for this reason, in other words, because of everything I have just told you, because of all of these blessings that you have, Paul does not cease to give thanks in his prayers. And verse 17, he asks that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That is, we might, might know Christ, we might truly know him, that having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable power towards us who believe, power according to the working of his great might, 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What does Paul want us to know? What is it that Paul wants us to, how does he want us to respond to the truths in verses 3 to 14? He wants our eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, to know the hope that we have, to know the riches that God has given us, and to know God's power towards us who believe. And it is that last point that I really want to push on, the power. Because I think that in Ephesians, what we see is Paul is, is almost like he's pulling back the curtain on reality. He's exposing the fact that this universe is a place where there are spiritual forces at work. These spiritual forces opposed Christ, and they oppose us as the church. It is why in the end of his letter, he calls the church to put on the armor of God because we are waging war against spiritual forces of darkness. And Paul wants us to know that in Christ, God has triumphed over these spiritual forces, that that he has truly crushed evil under his foot. But yet we as the church who live in this world are still faced with the struggle, with the fight against these spiritual forces. We are fighting against evil. The church in its very existence is proclaiming that God has won and has got a message to this world about Satan's overthrow. It is for this reason, it's for this reason of of spiritual darkness that Paul was in prison because he was proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And Paul closes with a remarkable prayer that when he asked the church to put on the armor of God, he also asked that the church finally would pray for him that words may be given to open his mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel of Christ, the gospel for which he is an ambassador in chains. I wonder if Paul's letter in exposing the the nature of spiritual reality is also a call to the church to be at war. It is a call for the church to be strengthened. It is a call for the church to understand what is going on. It is a call to take up arms. It is not a call to back down. Paul's situation is truly remarkable. He is suffering because he proclaimed Christ. That is the reason he was in prison. And what does he say when he is in prison? That I may continue to proclaim Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, in in this nation, we will suffer for proclaiming Christ. And the reason for that is ultimately spiritual, that, that Satan does want to stop the advance of the church and the proclamation of the glorious grace of God in Christ. And I think for many of us, myself included, that I would be afraid to proclaim the gospel for fear of going into prison. But yet Paul, whilst he is in prison, prays and asks other people to pray that he would continue to proclaim the gospel to God's praise and glory. You see, when Paul says that God's purpose is to the praise of his glorious grace, that is true in eternity, that the fact that we will be in heaven will continue 
to make known God's glorious grace. We will forever praise him. But it also has consequences now. Praise is not something merely that exists in the privacy of our own heart, but it is a public act. We make known God, the God of glory, because he is glorious, and his grace is worth making known to this world in darkness. Yet we should not be surprised when that will land us in very serious trouble. And so therefore, as we understand our identity in Christ, as we understand that we have been loved in God in him before the foundation of the world, as we understand that God has adopted us as his beloved children, as we understand that we have a hope, an inheritance laid up for us, as we understand that we are redeemed at the infinite expense of his son, as we understand that there is nothing that can keep us from our inheritance and eternal life in Christ. We should be strengthened and emboldened to live as his people and to proclaim the goodness and the glorious grace which God has demonstrated in Christ. Churches, those people who are in Christ, who have received every spiritual blessing in him, let us go forth in our hearts and with our mouths to the praise of of God's glorious grace. Let us pray. Our loving Father, how blessed are those you choose and bring within your courts of grace. How you have given us all blessings in Christ in your most holy place. Father, we pray that you would help us, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the riches of grace that you have given us in Christ, how all your purposes for creation find their climax in him and in the praise of your glorious grace which is demonstrated through him. Help us, we pray, to be those who radiate the glory of your grace that we in our hearts might recognize and rejoice everything that you have given to us, that you have not withheld any spiritual blessing. And we ask and pray that you would strengthen us, that we might be bold so to speak of your glory and of your goodness and of your grace in the redemption of Christ. We pray this for your namesake. Amen. heard of the wonderful salvation and all the spiritual blessings God has given to us in Christ. Let us respond in using the words of the Song of Simeon on page 10. <laughs> 